What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, good friends. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And welcome to this special holiday edition of the Bill Press Pod. You know, like many of you, watching the memorial service for First Lady Rosalind Carter last month, it got me thinking, maybe it's time to take another look at our 39th president, Jimmy Carter. How will history remember him? And do we remember him fairly enough? Was he really as ineffective a president as most people believe, or did he actually get a lot done? And isn't he, in fact, the model former president? Well, Jonathan Alter, former Newsweek columnist, was the first to raise these questions in a profile of Carter that he wrote a couple of years ago called His Very Best. Jonathan also writes about Jimmy Carter and Rosalind often in his weekly newsletter, Old Goats. So just before the holidays, we were lucky to catch up with Jonathan Alter for the chance to reassess Jimmy Carter and his legacy. Jonathan Alter, it's been way too long. Uh, good to reconnect with you. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thanks, Bill. I always love talking to you. Thank you. So, you know, certainly with First Lady Rosalind Carter's recent death, with President Carter in hospice, now for 10 months, the Carters are very much on our minds these days, and we thought it would be a great opportunity to look back with you on this remarkable couple and how history will remember them. But let's start with the, with the First Lady. I read your column about her. I didn't realize that people called her the Steel Magnolia. Right? I mean, That's she right. was a remarkable First Lady, wasn't she? Yeah, you know. The Carters tend to get overlooked in various projects about the presidents. And, you know, a couple of years ago, they did uh, some cable news, you know, docudrama type thing. And they did, um, you know, Betty Ford and Nancy Reagan and Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama. And they didn't have Rosalind Carter in there. And it was for anybody who actually knows anything about first ladies, that was kind of appalling because she and her husband revolutionized the, you know, informal position of first lady in this country. And she became so formidable and important and influential that even though her husband only served one term, she is in the, deserves to be in the first rank of first ladies up, hmm. up there with Eleanor Roosevelt and Abigail Adams, uh, and, uh, you know, you could put Hillary Clinton in there, but she actually got more done substantively than either Eleanor or Hillary. Wow. You know, the, the mental health act of 1980, which was something that she pushed through Congress with Ted Kennedy, who was her mm -hmm. husband's arch rival is uh, it was the first mental health legislation of any significance in the history of the country. Reagan defunded it, 
And so a lot of the provisions took years before they were implemented. But Hillary wasn't able to get her uh, health care bill. Of course. Right. Congress. Um, so anyway, we could go on about her, her but, substantive accomplishments. But um, well, I thought more- at, at her service, right, uh, that the fact that all the living first ladies, right, were there in the front row sort of said a lot. It said that she kind of set the standard for what a first lady should be, right? And she did a lot on her own, right, traveling around the world for, for causes. And um, and didn't she have her own policy team? Yeah, so she was the first first lady who had her own policy staff. That, you know, Whoa. Eleanor Roosevelt hadn't had that, much less any of the others. And <clears throat> she not only traveled around the world for causes, which other first ladies have done. She was a diplomat and she got very high marks from the New York Times and others as uh, the president's personal envoy. And she went and uh, had some, you know, rather sharp meetings with Latin American dictators and and told them that they needed to um, understand that uh, the Carter administration had a human rights policy and they were going to have to, you know, live with that. And she also was helpful on behalf of the Panama Canal treaties in that particular trip. And nobody remembers those, but, you know, if Jimmy Carter hadn't gotten approval of the Panama Canal treaties, uh, we would have had a Vietnam war type guerrilla war in Central America that might still be going on. We would have had the joint chief said, if the treaties hadn't been approved, we would have had to have a hundred thousand troops there in perpetuity, keeping global commerce uh, going. I was impressed that uh, you point out in your book, or maybe it was in the column I read, that when Jimmy Carter was asked who were the major, the people that he really depended on, right, when he was making tough decisions, right, and, and he mentioned Cy Vance, and he mentioned Ham Jordan, I, I forget a couple of others, but number yeah. one, he mentioned his wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, when he would say, we've got a big decision to make, he, he'd tell his secretary, you know, Get Rosalind, Sai, that's the Secretary of State. Uh, Zbig, that's Big New Brzezinski, the, right. yeah, yeah. the National Security Advisor. Ham, that's the White House Chief of Staff. Harold, that's the Secretary of Defense, Harold Brown. And, you know, as Hugh Seide of Time Magazine said in, in a column at the time, note the order. Yeah, right. Now, yes. if, if Rosalind Carter had been a different kind of person, maybe even like a you know, a number of other first ladies, powerful ones, like somebody like Nancy Reagan, there would have been resentment on the mm. part of, of Carter's aides. But, you know, I interviewed a, not just the Carters extensively for my book, but but a number of people work worked for uh, them, including both Brzezinski and Harold Brown, not long before their deaths. And Everybody liked her. They all respected her judgment, especially her political judgment. And so she was she was welcomed. And you know, um, I um, did you talk to her? Or did oh you? yeah, I talked. To, I talked to both of them mm-hmm. extensively. And I have to tell you a little. This is uh, you know <laughs> something that I really treasure is 
after his very best, after my, my book came out, um, which the Carters listened to on audible on tape, <laughs> uh, because by that time, Jimmy Carter had had a fall and, uh, Ooh. he, uh, he wasn't seeing well. His, his mind to this day is, is all there at age 99, but he, I had to stop emailing with him cause he couldn't read emails anymore. And, and this is how they read my book was they listened On to audible. a very good yeah. read of it. Um, actually I think it was technically Simon and Schuster audio, but yeah. in any event. So I, I of course was very interested in what their reaction would be to the book. And I heard from, uh, um, a mutual friend um, who had been to visit them in the period after they listened to the book. And uh, she quoted Rosalind as saying, well, Jonathan had some very critical things to say about Jimmy in his book, but he said only nice things about me. (laughs) (laughs) And that is absolutely true because I interviewed more than 250 people for this, for this book. And I didn't get a single person who had anything critical to say about, about Rose. That's amazing. And I developed a really nice, you know, connection to her. And she gave me the love letters that Jimmy had written to her from C, which nobody at the Carter library had even seen. They were stunned that the Carter library, when I published these love letters, one of which Amy Carter read at her uh, service, uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, after, Mrs. Carter died. And these are the most touching love letters ever exchanged between a president and first lady. Um, I, I mean, they had, and that, I, I, that's kind of the final thing I want to ask you about, Rosal. I mean, this was a real love story, wasn't it? I mean, you point out they were married 77 years and they had, this, is, this blew me away. They had known each other for 96 years. That's right. That's right. Because Jimmy's mother, uh, Ms. Lillian, as she was known, she was famous in the Carter administration because she was this uh, real pistol who was on Johnny Carson a lot. Really funny lady. Yeah. And she was a nurse and she took care of black patients for free. Uh, and everybody else in town would pay what they could afford. And the Smith family and Rosalind uh, Smith, uh, um, they didn't have very much money, but, you know, they paid, probably paid uh, Ms. Lillian a little bit to deliver Rosalind. And um, she did 96 Mm. years ago. And a couple days later, she brought her her two and a half year old toddler around to see <laughs> baby. Um, they didn't start dating until he was at the Naval Academy, and oh. Rosalind was best friends with Jimmy's sister Ruth, um, and and she kind of mooned over the picture of him at the Naval Academy, and then they. Oh wow! Huh. But you know, we Emily, my wife and I, we went to their seventy fifth wedding anniversary in. Plains, mm. Georgia, a couple of summers ago, and Nancy Pelosi and the Clintons came down, but most of the people who were there were their, you know, their friends and neighbors. Yeah, very modest. Uh, mm. Just a really terrific party um, that where they celebrated, and I realized 
I looked it up and there are only a thousand couples in the United States who've been married more than 75 years and the cars were married 77 years. So it will be less than a thousand Mm. who had a marriage that lasted as long as theirs. How about that? All right. Now let's move to Mr. Carter, Jimmy Carter himself, you know, as you pointed out, he's he's 99 as we speak, the longest living American president. Uh, and I think we ought to talk about his presidency and his post-presidency. But first, just let me ask you, how the hell did Jimmy Carter go from being a dirt farmer in this small town of Georgia, I mean, to governor of that state, and then to president of the United States? I mean, it is an incredible story. Yeah, it is. It's an American epic. Um, but it's, um, uh, well, I think just in terms of how he got to be governor of Georgia, he, you know, he left the Navy in 1953 when his father died. He had been uh, a protege of Admiral Hyman Rickover, who, for those of you listeners who don't know who he was, he is the man who Colin Powell credited with winning the Cold War because he designed the first nuclear power nuclear sub, right? Yeah. And we could stay, you know, we could we could stay underwater, our submarines could stay underwater for much longer than the Soviets. And it, it just changed the strategic balance. And so Carter was working for Rickover and his father died. And over Rosalind's strong objection, she didn't want to go back home to Plains. He went home to assume his father's responsibilities. His father had been a successful merchant. He wasn't a dirt farmer. He was a agribusinessman. Mm-hmm. And but his his business um, was close to bankrupt, and and. So after his death, um, basically the family business would have gone under if Jimmy didn't quit the Navy and and take over. So he did that. His brother Billy, who we can talk about if you want, wasn't old enough at that point. <laughs> and so um, he assumed his father's civic responsibilities, uh, which were unbelievably extensive. And Carter became this huge um, joiner, basically running a lot of different things, not just in Southwest Georgia, but all over the state. Mm-hmm. He was head of the Lions Club in in Georgia, which you know, yeah. a, a tremendous political network that he created lo- well before he went into politics. And then he was chair of the uh, local school board, unable to implement Brown versus Board uh, because they couldn't even talk about it when I went over the minutes. Of the, of the Sumter County School Board. So he, he couldn't integrate, but he was very interested in education. And he ran for the state Senate in 1962 and got elected after his opponent tried to stuff the ballot box. And, um, and then ran unsuccessfully uh, in 1966 for governor, but for governor. closer mm-hmm. than a lot of people expected. So his victory in 1970 as governor was not unexpected, but what was amazing about it, and I know you want to talk about a lot of other things, but, you know, growing up and being a young man in the Jim Crow South, it was so fascinating for me to research the way Carter handled all this, because he basically, he had to pander to segregationists to get elected 
governor of Georgia. But then once he did, he he became the Jimmy Carter that we knew from literally the first moment mm. in his inaugural address as governor. He says the time for racial discrimination is over and he integrates Georgia and then he goes on to basically move the federal government from tokenism to real diversity when he's president. He appoints five mm-hmm. times as many women to the federal bench as all of his predecessors combined yeah. uh, and, and, you know, becomes kind of more the Jimmy Carter we know. And he spends the second half of his life making up for what he didn't do. In other words, being part of the civil rights movement in the first half. And he globalizes the civil rights movement with his human rights policy, which has driven an enormous amount of change around the world. Uh, and uh, so in any event, just very briefly in terms of how he got elected president, I, I'd give a one word explanation for that Watergate. Huh, this poor yeah. former governor of Georgia, who mm-hmm. in another situation would never have made it, was a breath of fresh air from the outside after Watergate. And, um, and so he went from zero percent in the polls to, uh, to the white house. Amazing. Uh, I just have to, just a little segue here at the time I was working for Jerry Brown, uh, 1975, this is right in, in, uh, California and his, uh, uh, I was his policy director. I got a call from a friend of mine in the Bay area who said, Hey, I got this friend of mine. I, this guy I met, he's really, he's really a great guy. And, um, you know, he's running from whatever. And I was wondering if, if uh, we might, Carol and I might hold a little friend raiser for him in Sacramento, not a fundraiser, just, just want him to introduce him to some people, people, you know, get to meet him. And I said, so who, who is this guy again? He said, well, his name is Jimmy Carter. And I said, and who is he? He said, oh, he's governor of Georgia. And I said, and what's he running for? And he yeah. said, president of the United States. And I said, I just laughed out loud. I said, are you kidding? No, no way. So of course <laughs> I didn't do it. I missed my chance, you know? Yeah. Well, I have a lot of people reacting that way in my book, <laughs> including the Atlanta constitution, which ran a headline, Jimmy Carter is running for what? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. you know that he is remembered sadly by most people, I think as a one-term president who was in over his head, who was not up to the job. And so we sent him back to Georgia Certainly not fair. Is it time to reassess the Carter presidency, and how should he be remembered? Well, I did. I did reassess him. Yes, so of course I yeah. believe that because my whole book is a reassessment. Look, I don't think he belongs on Mount Rushmore. He got swamped by events, a lot of which were beyond his control. He did make some mistakes, but his presidency is the most mis remembered, misunderstood in American history because he actually got more legislation through Congress in four years uh, than either Bill Clinton or Barack Obama did in eight. Wow. And, uh, yeah. and not to mention, you know, much more than the Republican president. Mm-hmm. And so basically what my, my shorthand on him, Bill, is that Jimmy Carter was a political failure. He was you know, swamped by Ronald Reagan in 1980. And that's that's how journalists judge presidents. How, how do they do politically? Right. So he was a political right. failure, but he was a substantive and often visionary success. So historians have a different mission. When I took off my journalist hat and put on my historian hat, I had a very different take 
because he had a lot of points on the board, particularly mm-hmm. on the environment, but in many other things. So I think people know that he put solar panels on the roof of the White House in 1979, which is how my book opens. And then Reagan Reagan took them down. Took them down. It wasn't yeah. until Obama that they went back up again. So I think people kind of know that, but that was just symbolic of of big things that he, he actually got accomplished. And and you know, we can talk about either domestic or foreign policy, whatever you wish, but you know, if you look overseas, people remember the Iran hostage crisis, and I'm critical of Carter for sort of allowing himself to be taken hostage by the Ayatollah. Um, and, and certain things that he did wrong in that, uh, whole crisis, although the hostages all came home safely, which is not a minor thing. So I'm a little critical of that, but other than that, his foreign policy was hugely successful and hugely important, not just the Camp David Accords, uh, which brought peace between Israel and Egypt and is the most enduring peace treaty since World War II. Um, but uh, normalizing relations with China. Deng Xiaoping mm-hmm. leaves Washington. He goes back to Beijing. Right. And the first thing he does is he legalizes private property, and the U.S.-Chinese bilateral relationship becomes the foundation of the global economy, uh, which is what Carter thinks is will be his most long-lasting accomplishment. Interesting. Uh, Panama yeah. Canal treaties, which I mentioned, prevented a huge war. Um, the the and the human rights policy, which you know had tremendously far-reaching uh, implications, even though it was somewhat hypocritically applied when he was president. And and I could go on, but there are the list is very long, Bill, of things that. He got accomplished even as he was floundering politically. But by the way, you mentioned Camp David. I didn't realize till I was, you know, looking over some notes, getting ready for our talk today. That so that was Camp David, Menachem Begin, Enwar Sadat, Jimmy Carter at Camp David for thirteen days. <laughs> I mean, imagine anybody, right? Uh, today, putting that much attention to one issue to get it oh, resolved. I oh, mean, he put so much more attention than that. So Carter yeah. was often ridiculed, you know, even by people who don't know that much about him. Just part of the the rap on him is that he he spent you know, too much time on detail. And uh, you know, I I had been an intern in the uh, Carter speechwriting office when I was in college, and. Um, it was my boss, Jim Fallows, my my friend who mm-hmm. I greatly admire, uh, um, fantastic journalist. But he was the one who first published that Carter, um, you know, made decided who got to use the White House tennis court, and that became oh, oh, oh yeah kind of the symbol of this. Mm-hmm. It turns out that actually wasn't true, and that um, his secretary Susan Clow would forge his initials, you know, on that. Oh she yeah, did it, and and but. More broadly, his attention to detail was extremely important in not just Camp David, but most of his major accomplishments, including ones that people don't remember at all, like the Alaska Lands Bill, which passed, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in 1980, right? He's on the way out of office. And it doubled the size of the national parks. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. doubling. You know, yeah. and that was just one of fifteen major pieces of environmental legislation that he signed. 
Indeed, political failure, perhaps, and for sure, I guess, but substantive and visionary success. Including uh, and, climate change. He was the first president well, yeah. who paid any attention to that. Right. And now the post-presidency, uh, let's get into it, but we need to take a little break here first, Jonathan, if we can, if you hold on there just a minute, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll pick up with uh, Jimmy Carter, who certainly also brought honesty and decency to the White House, and will be remembered for that. We'll be right back. And today's podcast, looking again at Jimmy Carter with Jonathan Alter, brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, or the UFCW. The members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone, you know, they're the union workers that most of us meet most often in our daily lives. They take care of us at our great retail stores like Macy's and Nordstrom, service at our grocery chains like Ralph's and Safeway and others. Uh, they are the people who staff our chemical plants, cannabis plants, meat and poultry processing plants. And we thank them for all the great services that they provide us on a daily basis and thank them especially for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at ufcw.org. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back with today's podcast, talking with Jonathan Alter about uh, Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter. Jonathan, as a man who wears many hats, he's a filmmaker, TV producer, we remember, know him best, perhaps, as a journalist, columnist for Newsweek for a long time, uh, and author of several books, including his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. And Jonathan, a few years ago, launched on Substack his own newsletter called Old Goats, <laughs> Ruminating with Friends. Jonathan, welcome back. So uh, from one old goat to another, uh, tell us about your newsletter. How can people, I, I have subscribed, by the way, recently well, and you. enjoy enjoy very much your work. So tell people how they can sign up. Well, you just go to, if you put my name, Jonathan Alter and old goats into uh, Google, <laughs> uh, my 
my newsletter will come up Substack. Uh, it's on Substack, and you know I interview people. I, um, I and you you ruminate yourself. I ruminate. I write columns. So the last uh, in you know in recent weeks, I've been kind of doing a bunch of obits. So I wrote not just about my uh, relationship with Rosalind Carter, uh, but also uh, my mentor in journalism, Charlie Peters. Oh, yeah. Founder and editor of the Washington Monthly, who's a, a, <laughs> a figure that you might have seen. He had a very long obit in the New York Times. And oh, yeah. yeah. Washington Post. He was a tremendously influential figure and also an eccentric. So I wrote about him. <laughs> and then I wrote about my, my uh, relationship with Norman Lear. So sometimes I'm talking about old goats who've gone oh, out to yeah. pasture, <laughs> Colonel pasture. And other times uh, I, you know, interview people over 60, um, you know, everybody from Andy Young to Ralph Nader, Gary Trudeau, a, a lot of different people yeah. who, uh, the culture is so youth oriented, as you know, Bill, that I, I I just think that older people have a lot to say, especially if they've had really interesting careers and um, uh, maybe not especially even people who haven't had really interesting careers have a tremendous amount to say that's interesting. Yeah. And uh, I, um, I want to tap that a little bit. Yeah, no, very eclectic. Uh, the the range of subjects and people you talk to, uh, I find fasc- fascinating. So we'll have a link uh, in the episode notes to today's podcast, uh, Jonathan, for uh, all of our listeners to make it easy for them to uh, find the newsletter "Old Goats Ruminating with Friendship with Friends" and to sign up, and also a link to buy a copy of your book, which is still up there on Amazon. His very best, Jimmy Carter, alive. So. Jimmy will be, wouldn't you agree, he'll be most maybe beloved and remembered for his post-presidency, where he has certainly set the tone for every president, right? That the post-presidency should be all about public service. No question. So, you know, first he um, he reinvents the vice presidency by giving his vice president, Walter Mondale, real things to do, which no president had before. Then, as we discussed, he reinvents the position of first lady. And then after leaving office, he, he reinvents the post-presidency. Mm-hmm. And um, he did, it's, it's wrong to say he got more done as a post-president, uh, former president, because former presidents don't have any real power. So he got much more done as president. But as a former president, after he established the Carter Center, um, he really um, uh, set a new standard um, that not not all former presidents, certainly not Donald Trump, have lived <laughs> up to, but most of them in both parties um, have tried to do more than just you know play golf and pick up uh, checks for giving speeches <laughs> and serving on boards. And Carter has. Um, nearly eradicated guinea worm disease, made tremendous progress against river blindness. And these are diseases that afflict millions of people around the world. I think guinea worm went from 3.5 million cases to their under under 30 now Ooh, in the world. Lord. That's a that's a big accomplishment. Um, he and Rosalind- This is all through the Carter Center. Through the Carter Center. He and Rosalind supervised elections in more than 100 countries, and they kind mm. of established that- democracy promotion idea of, of getting out there and having 
other other eyes. You know, they'd have a bunch of monitors with them um, to keep elections as clean as possible in in various countries. He um, in 1994, in particular, he was able to prevent wars in both Haiti and North Korea, uh, even though he was quarreling with Bill Clinton, who was president at the time. And Carter sometimes acted like a freelance secretary of state, which could be very annoying yeah. for his successors. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, then there were some other ceasefires and that kind of thing that he did. He wasn't as successful, particularly in the Middle East, as I think he had hoped to be in, in terms of being a peacemaker, but he he tried, and that was important on its own terms. And then I think people know about Habitat for Humanity. He never, he didn't start Habitat for Humanity. He chaired the board, and every year he and Rosalind would go build a house somewhere in the world. I built one with them in Memphis in <laughs> 2016. And that was quite an experience, as you might imagine. I'll bet. I mean, uh, but he, he was really on the line, right? I mean, hammer in hand. Oh, and that, yeah. that doesn't begin to describe it. So, <laughs> so like yeah. when we went on the site, the uh, the Habitat guy says, you know, President Carter, do you want to be the foreman? He goes, oh, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. But, of course, once <laughs> we start working, he's like a submarine captain or something. He's barking out orders. And at one point, he didn't like my hammering, and he came over and <laughs> And showed me how to hammer better. And he could drive this. At this point, he was in his early 90s. He could drive a hammer into, you know, a, a plank in like four strokes. It was crazy. And then there was a bandsaw there. He's he's a professional woodworker who built Ooh. all the furniture in in his house. And then they have a cabin in the in the woods at both of their homes. And it, I've been, you know, I've seen the furniture. It's really good. There's actually, if anybody's interested in woodworking, there's a, a, a book, a coffee table book that has his quite beautiful work. And the guy is, you know, he's the closest we've had to a Renaissance man as president mm. since uh, Thomas Jefferson. Since Thomas, he's a, yeah. he's well. an enormously able guy who, you know, has a book of poetry, which some of the poems are not half bad. And you know, uh, wrote history and, uh, I could, it, it would take all day to list his various areas of expertise, which he, um, he developed for himself. Now, and one thing, uh, finally, Jonathan, we haven't talked about is his faith. I mean, Jimmy Carter, in terms of a person of faith, uh, again, my, just from reading your book and what I know about Jimmy Carter. I mean, faith for him was a very real and important part of his life. And yet he also was not, you wouldn't call him an evangelical. He wasn't for tearing down the wall of separation between church and state. But tell, well, I mean, talk it, about it, his faith and what impact that had on his More than that, I mean, work. it had an enormous impact on him. He learned much of it from uh, uh, an illiterate black uh um, farm worker on his father's property who would take him out and teach him some of his love of nature and God. Um, hmm. Her name was Rachel Clark. Uh, and he became arguably the most devout man ever to be president of the United States. In 1968, after he had sunk into a bit of a depression after losing for governor the first time, he went door to door for Jesus in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania 
And he was a Southern, is a Southern Baptist, but, you know, he is the original Baptist. Um, when Roger Williams, you know, founded Rhode Island, Baptists were the original believers in the separation of church and state. It's, it's kind mm-hmm. of hard to remember now, but, and the most important bill that he introduced as a state senator in Georgia was to strengthen the separation of church and state in Georgia. And then as president, of course, he was a, a big believer in that. And he got so upset as a former president with where the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest religious organization in the United States, where it was moving, that he quit uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and is now allied hmm. with um, liberal Baptists who have a very different view of what their faith uh, requires. But the whole time he has been, um, you know, he has. I mean, he was famously born again uh, in the 1960s, but um, he was already quite um, devout even before his born again experience. And I have a lot in the book about his uh, relationships with some of these right wing or more conservative evangelical Christians like um, Billy Graham and some of these guys, they they jumped on him after he said he had lust in his heart in the famous yeah. Playboy interview. And that was very, very annoying to Jimmy Carter because he knew that all of them as as teenagers had been taught in the Baptist <laughs> church that they had lust in their heart. So, you yeah. know, he, he was often, often at odds with these folks. And then, you know, Jerry Falwell. Right. For right. the moral majority in 1980, and and these these hypocritical evangelicals went for Reagan, who you know didn't go. Reagan was like Trump, he you know was just pretending to be a Christian, and so all of that is part of a, a really compelling story about Carter's inner life. Um, and, um, I went and saw him a couple of times teaching Sunday school, Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. which was a, just an extraordinary experience. Um, and he would, uh, one time my my wife and I had dinner with him in Plains, uh, and he left a little early, not just because he was in his nineties, but because he had to go home and write his uh, Sunday school lesson. (laughs) But this is an enormously intelligent, decent, sometimes difficult, sometimes snappish, a prickly, but fundamentally good person who I think uh, in terms of religion, in some ways, I think his, his credo comes a little bit more from the faith that Rosalind was raised in the Methodist church and Methodists, as you know, believe, uh, that we should do as much as we can for as many as we can for as long as we can. And I think that's been the, uh, uh, the idea that Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter lived by. A fundamentally decent and honest person. Uh, can't say that about all of our former presidents, mentioning no names, of course. Uh, but Jonathan, it is time for us to f- better appreciate the presidency and the contributions of both Rosalind Carter and Jimmy Carter. 
to our country. Uh, you are the leader of the movement to do so, Jonathan Alter, and we thank you for all that you've done, and thanks particularly for spending some time with us today on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks, Bill. I really enjoyed it. And that's it for today's roundtable. Uh, Jimmy Carter huh? looks a lot better looking back, doesn't he? And uh, we will remember him, I think, a lot better than most of us have up until now. And now, next up on Friday, as usual, we'll have our roundtable. But this is going to be a very special roundtable this week. Uh, people always tell me, many of you when I run into you, that your favorite part of the Bill Press Pod is the roundtable, and especially the favorite story of the week of our members of the panel. So for a special holiday treat, we've put together this roundtable, which will feature the favorite, favorite stories from our regular roundtable panelists. That's Friday, December 29, favorite, favorite stories on the Bill Press Pod Roundtable. So so have a great holiday week, everybody. We'll see you again on Friday for the Roundtable, Friday, December 29.